Today we are uh, continuing through the Gospel of Matthew, and we are finishing the parables in which uh, Jesus, after he talks about his second coming in chapter 24, he follows up with three parables which kind of let us know how we are to live as we await the second coming of Christ. And we've got a lot to go through today, so we're just going to dive right into it uh, today. And the first parable, if you remember, in chapter 25 was the parable of the ten virgins, which is that warning to us that we should uh, not become complacent the, in the parable. Jesus says that the, the bridegroom was a long time coming, and in that long time of, of wait, we're not to become complacent. The second parable we talked about was the parable of the talents, where again the master goes away, leaving, talent, leaving money with his servants to invest their resources into his kingdom, into his work, and we're told he's going to be, he was a long time coming there as well. And then we're looking at the third one today, which is the uh, parable of the sheep and the goats. And most of these parables you've heard quite a bit, especially the one on the talents and this one on the sheep and the goats. And there's lots of different angles we can take on this. And so today's sermon is just one of those many angles. But in this one, he kind of, he, Jesus is telling us the attitude with which we are to invest the resources which God has given us. So Jesus starts out by saying this. He sets up the context by saying this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. So Jesus opens up this parable by making it clear the context that He's talking about is when He returns. There's a second coming he comes in his glory. It won't be the same as the first coming, which was very humble and in the manger. We celebrate this around Christmas time. But the second coming is going to be, it's going to be a different thing. It's going to be in all his glory. And it's not going to be coming in that place of opening up the door to salvation through the cross. It's going to be coming in a place of judgment. How have you responded to the cross? And so people get defensive. People don't like the idea of judgment. And oftentimes what will happen in that place of not liking the idea of judgment, people will fall back on an unbiblical understanding of grace, which we're going to be talking about a lot today. Because it's important to understand there is going to be a judgment. And you need to understand really what the role of grace, faith, and works is when it comes to that judgment. He goes on to say, He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, Take your inheritance, a kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. This last sentence is an important one to understand that our journey through humanity and your journey in life and your part of being in this, in this story of humanity is not a mistake. There's a kingdom that has been prepared since the creation of the world. There's other places that talk about Jesus was called to the role of Messiah since before time began. The idea is that we're not on some kind of journey that we're just sort of, you know, walking down and God's like, oh, I don't know how this is going to turn out. Because that's sometimes how it's expressed when people will say, like, the fall of man, the Garden of Eden, they act like it came as a surprise to God. It doesn't come as a surprise to God. This is all part of a journey of development. We've talked about this a lot over the last couple of weeks as we've been around the second coming. And, uh, and we've talked about at the end, when you, when you read the book of Revelation, at the end, you're sort of back at the beginning. You're in the we are in the presence of God. The tree of life is there. The differences are we are now in the city of God instead of the garden of God. 
and we are no longer naive, or Adam and Eve seem to be somewhat naive. We're no longer in that place of naivety. But it's a place that's been prepared since the creation of the world. There's a destination to this journey that we're on. Even though it feels like this crazy world is just kind of a mess, and sometimes we wonder, is there any real plan to it? There is. And we are fortunate to live in the time where we have the Bible as the Word of God that we can look to as a place of foundation. We have the events like the cross, where we are on this side of the cross, where we can receive the salvation made possible upon the cross through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We are the place that we can receive the Holy Spirit of God to have our lives transformed, become alive again spiritually. We also have the privilege to live in a time when we can see major prophecies having come true. One of the major ones we've talked about a little bit was just the reestablishment of Israel. No one expected a, a nation that had been, disappeared off the map for over 2,000 years. I shouldn't say no one. Very few people expected that this would ever physically come back into, uh, into being. Most theologians before 1948 kind of made a metaphor out of the idea of the nation of Israel. They couldn't imagine there was going to actually be a nation. And yet there was. It's rather astounding times that we live in. We're a privileged people to be able to have all this to base our faith upon. And then Jesus talks about judgment. And he says this. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison, or go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for the least of these, my brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you sick or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes? I'm sorry, see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you. And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for the one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. On the surface, this is a very straightforward parable. But there's a lot of questions this parable brings up. One of the questions it brings up is this question, are we saved by our works or are we saved by the grace of God? Now, one of the things that is often emphasized in particularly our tradition of Christianity is that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is clearly stated in the scripture several times, and we'll look at times like that. However, like often happens, people will often take a concept and sort of corrupt it, twist it to their desires. And sometimes they do this consciously because they're trying to use something as an out, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Sometimes they do it unconsciously because 
of the background that they come from. For example, Martin Luther, many of you know, the great German theologian and reformer, he sort of rediscovered the concept of grace in the 1500s when he was teaching, actually, the book of Romans. He was a monk, and he was teaching it. And he came to realize that this concept of grace had been lost in the Catholic Church. It had been obscured by ideas of rituals and having to do certain works in order to be saved. And so grace was obscured and, and, and like a, kind of like a recovering alcoholic that will go from one extreme to the other. Luther went to this extreme of grace. You are saved by grace. And it became the bedrock upon which he began to push back against some of the teachings of the church. And if you're from Germany or even if you know anything about church history, this is a, a huge turning point in, in the church's history. It is the beginning of a radical realignment of the church with Scripture. And that realignment didn't just stop with Martin Luther. In fact, it continued past the place where Luther was even comfortable. Martin Luther was, kind of con was considered what they call a magisterial reformer. He wanted the church to reform, but he wasn't really looking to establish a whole new church. He didn't want the church to break away from the control of the state or the relationship with the state. And of course, once that ball got rolling, uh, it went further than even he was comfortable with. And we're, we're part of the tradition that went further. And, uh, and Martin Luther would be a little uncomfortable. We're not from the Anabaptist background. That's more your Mennonites, your Hussites and all that. But Luther, who was all about, you know, saved by grace, he would sometimes say things like, all the Anabaptists and their children should be killed and fed to the dogs because he found them to be going too far and it, that, was, that made him nervous. Luther is an is a, is a incredibly important man in Christian history, but he was a man. And sometimes he said amazing things that really turned the church back toward its place of Scripture. Sometimes he said things you're just like, wow, you know, what are you thinking, man? And, uh, and so he's a man with feet of clay in that sense. And what began to happen is that people got to the point that grace became such the focus that even some people began to teach that even if you try and do anything good, you are undermining grace. If you try and express by doing a good work, you're actually undermining the work of grace. You're not trusting grace enough. You're actually still in the back of your mind trying to, to put your eggs in the basket of good works. And this became such an issue in the church, particularly in Europe, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was another great German theologian, uh, said this about grace, how he saw it in the church. He said, cheap grace. And he had this phrase, cheap grace. And if you want to read his full thought, you can get this book called The Cost of Discipleship. In German, it's Nachfolge. It's discipleship just in German. He says this, cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living incarnate. So the point that he's making is that the church had gotten to this point where grace became this thing that was sort of standing on its own without anything around it, and you're saved by grace, and you don't have to respond in any way towards, uh, you know, clothing the sick. I mean, visiting the sick, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, all that stuff, people had gotten to the point of saying all that stuff is undermining just trusting God. And Bonhoeffer's like, wow, that's, all that does is allows you to live in this place of I'm saved and I don't have to respond or trans have my life transformed or really be affected by it in any real way. 
He calls that cheap grace. And when you look at the Bible, you see this. You see there's a connection that, we often, that is often missed. So I already kind of quoted part of this verse for you, but verse 10 is an important one. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, this not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Most people stop there. But the very next verse says, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now notice we are saved by grace. Absolutely. We cannot earn our salvation. But the reason that we are saved is so that we can function as the people that God meant us to be without being weighed down or corrupted by sin. And if we function as a people that are no longer weighed down or corrupted by sin, then that will reflect in how we live our lives. And if we live our lives as people who are really under the grace of God, under that place of forgiveness, out from under the corrupting influence of sin, then our lives will reflect that. And if our lives are not reflecting that, then there's an issue with, are we really under that place of grace? And this becomes that very fine line that, the, that we have to walk. And this is one reason why the church has either fallen off that line to say we're works-based or fallen off the other side saying, hey, it's all by grace and you have no more input in it at all. In fact, if you try and have some input, you're undermining grace. It's a very fine line. And as human beings, we have a tendency to want, we don't like to walk fine lines. We want to have a nice wide highway to walk. But Jesus tells us, right, that wide highway is the way to hell. You need to walk a fine line sometimes. You need to think. You need to have nuance and subtlety in your life. And so we're not saved by doing good works, but rather because we're saved, we will grow in that nature of Jesus Christ, and we will then be able to function in the way that God prepared for us in advance for us to live. Again, your life isn't a mistake. Your life isn't just some happy coincidence. There are things which God prepared in advance for you to do, a direction for your life to go. But it's only going to go there, God's direction, if you're living within God's character and living within God's will. And you've heard me say before, you cannot do the will of God while living outside of the character of God. And so if you want to live in this place where you, you do the things that God prepared in advance for you to do, then you need to live within His character. And that's the point. That's where works and grace comes together. You cannot really do the good works that God prepared for you to do if you're not under the grace of God and the forgiveness of God. But because you're under the grace and forgiveness of God, then you are expected to do these works. James talks about this a lot. The book of James is probably one of the more controversial books. You know, when the Bible was being put together, the book of James and the book of Hebrews got the most pushback uh, from people wanting to include it in the Bible. And you can kind of see why. Uh, when we read through some of these from James. James is writing from a very Jewish point of view. It's, un- it's important to understand his context. And he's writing to a people who are very firmly, they grew up very firmly under the idea of the law of Moses and being made righteous by the law of Moses. So he talks in those terms. He talks about the law of perfect love, not in the sense that we think of laws now, but he's trying to speak the language of people who are used to be under the law of Moses. And he wants them to transfer their thinking thinking to the law of love, and so he uses this word law. Uh, And the only reason why I'm pointing this out is because I've had people over the years who want to say that we're still under some kind of law. And it's like you have to understand where James is coming from and who he's writing to. 
But he does say some very important things because he is in the, he, I believe he's seen in the early church this issue of people saying, well, I'm saved, therefore I don't really have to do anything. I'm saved by the grace of God. So he says this, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law, see there's where he uses that term, that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has seen, but doing it, will be blessed in what he does. So according to this passage, as one looks intently into the perfect law which gives freedom, and what is that perfect law? That's that perfect law of love that is expressed by Jesus Christ upon the cross and through the resurrection. That is what he's talking about. If you look at what Christ did, what it means that he who knew no sin became sin for us, and he took upon his shoulders our sins so that we could receive his righteousness. The more you look into that and receive his righteousness, then you will be transformed in the things that you do, not forgetting what he has done, but allowing it to transform you. Those things, will, you will be blessed when you do those because you'll be acting within the will of God. One of the things that sometimes people pray, they'll say, oh, the scripture says, you know, if you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you want and it'll be given unto you. And people just kind of focus on the ask whatever you want and it'll be given unto you part. And Jesus says, no, you need to remain in me and my word remains in you. In other words, if you're within my character, then you will ask those things which are within my will. You ask those things which are within my will, my will will be done. You'll be blessed in those things. And then he goes on to write, and James just gets more and more challenging. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? In other words, if he claims he has faith, but you don't see it in his life. Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well. Keep, well and keep warm and well fed. But does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone who say, I have faith, I have, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. Now, it might surprise some of you, Martin Luther wasn't a big fan of the letter of James. He called it the epistle of straw. And the reason why he didn't like it it wasn't because he just disregarded it altogether. It's kind of an anecdotal thing that Martin Luther just hated it altogether. But he felt like it, it kind of obscured the idea of being saved by grace. And we got to remember, Martin Luther went from being this place that was very law-ridden, in fear of the law, in fear of not, not uh, fulfilling the rituals, to this place of grace. So he goes to this extreme over here. And he didn't like James. felt like James was obscuring the idea of, of salvation through grace. But he's not. What James emphasizes is that faith is expressed by acting on the promise of God. Kalichi made a great little comment in his sermon a couple weeks ago when he said, faith, and I'm probably butchering this a bit, but it, it stuck with me, faith is the hand by which we reach out and take the gift of God. Faith is an active thing. It's a verb. It's not just a passive thing. And he uses Abraham as an example of this. And when you, when you read the context of Abraham, 
And the example he gives, it makes sense. But his last verse, and you'll see, verse 24, if you take this out of context, this could cause a lot of problems. He says this, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. Here's the controversial verse, if you take it out of context. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Some people find it a surprise that that verse 24 is in the Bible because it seems to go against everything like, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourself, not by works, so that no one can boast. What is he saying here? He's saying that Abraham's faith was such that it transformed his life so that he acted on his faith. He didn't just have a faith up here or an intellectual agreeing to something. And the Bible does this a lot. This is a different way that the Hebrew mind thinks than the way many of us think. If you look at the, at the, the last uh, verses, verse in the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark, it'll say, those who believe and are baptized will be saved. Some people throughout history have interpreted that as you must be baptized in order to be saved. That's a Greek way of thinking. We tend to split things up. Believe, baptize are two different things. The Hebrew way of thinking is, if your life has been changed, then your actions will express it. They don't really have in their brains this idea that I can believe something and claim I believe it and not act on it at all. To the Hebrews, that's like, huh? Another place you see this is Romans chapter 10. It says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Are those two different actions? Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart? Some of our Western thinking would say, yeah, those are two things. You're confessing this and you're believing this. The Hebrew way is like, no, those go together. If, you are, if there's been this transformation in your life, then it should show. There's a children's song that kind of talks about this. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Well, this is kind of a spiritual, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved under the place of grace, then your life should demonstrate that. And how should it be demonstrated? This is, again, one of the places people struggle with. So when we come back to this sheep and goats, let's look at this. The righteous will answer them. I find it interesting that as we get back to the sheep and the goats, for me, one of the most intriguing things is that neither the sheep or the goats really seem to be conscious about how they're living their life. They're both somewhat unconscious about what they're doing. It says here, the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The righteous in this parable are kind of, they're, they're sort of presented as being blessedly clueless. The good that they do and they're commended for is simply because their character has been transformed into that of Christ. They're not doing good deeds with this idea of they're checked in the barks. Did I do these good things? Did I do these good things? They're not doing good works with the idea of making sure, just in case this grace thing doesn't work out, I've got the goods you know, behind me of the good stuff that I've done. It's just who they are. They have been transformed by the Spirit of God into good people. 
Remember Jesus one time, there's a guy that comes and says, good teacher, and Jesus immediately goes on that, and he says, why do you call me good? Only the Father in heaven is good. And what Jesus is saying here, these people, through the grace of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life, had transformed them so that the good they did was simply out of who they had become, not because they were trying to follow a script or not because they were trying to check the boxes. They had become the people of God, and this is why they inherit the kingdom of God. And that's why the king replies to them, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers of mine, you did it for me. And in the same way, the goats also are living unconsciously. And they, they kind of ask the same question that the, that the sheep asked, but they ask it with a little bit more anger, like, well, wait a minute, we didn't see a sign that said Jesus is hungry. We didn't see a sign that said Jesus is thirsty. We didn't see a sign that says Jesus is naked and needs to be clothed, or he's sick, or he's in prison. We didn't see that. How are we supposed to know we should have done that? It wasn't made clear to us. Because these are folks that are relying upon making sure they follow rules, they tick the boxes in order to receive their salvation. And the response they get from the king is, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did not do for me. And this whole concept of true faith leading to true actions is reinforced by Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, we often point out that the fruits of the Spirit are the true indication of life with Christ, and this is important to understand, and we talk about this all the time, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the true signs of a life transformed, because other religions and other expressions of, of you know, the supernatural can manifest themselves in ways which can be seen even in Christianity. You know, we're not the only religion that's, that claims to speak in the name of God, prophesies. We're not the only faith that some folks speak in, uh, speak in tongues. There's other faiths, that, the other religions that have this kind of ecstatic experience. Satan himself is called, he can appear to be an angel of light. So there are things on those outward appearances that can be fools, that can fool us. And so Jesus says this. Now listen to it carefully, understanding the fruit of the Spirit. He says, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. How are you going to recognize them? By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. It cannot because its nature does not allow it to. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit for the same reason. Its nature does not allow it to. Every tree that does bear good fruit, uh, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And this makes context of this next passage, which freaks people out. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, 
The winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. So it's important here to understand that it's the lives of the people transformed who bear the fruit of Christ. That's what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit, which we go through quite often, is the character of God. It's the character and nature of Jesus Christ. And we want to grow in those fruits so that we act within the character and nature of Christ. And if we act within the character and nature of Christ, we will do the will and nature of Christ. And things like kind of the outward things which we as human beings tend to mark as being these are the signs of a, of a true believer, preaching, leading church, doing all the outward stuff, speaking in tongues, casting out demons. Jesus says, you know, those things, those things can be done without being within my character. Those things can be faked, in other words. Satan is an angel of light. He can fake all that stuff. What can't be faked is your true character. And it's that character that is made possible for you to have through the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. These things can't be faked. That's why he says, by their fruit, you'll know them. Not by their giftedness, you'll know them. Not by their occupation, you'll know them. Not by what they do on Sunday morning, you'll know them. By their fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. And this is important to understand. This is, this is that fine line that goes through some of the confusion of faith. Because people will read that when not everyone says, Lord, Lord, to me, will enter the kingdom of heaven. People freak out when they hear that. They get nervous. They're like, am I one of those people? Am I one of the ones? And the answer to that question is, well, what are you relying on? Are you relying on what you do? Or are you relying on who you've been made, the person you are in Christ Jesus? Are you relying on the Holy Spirit? Are you allowing that Spirit to transform you so that you live differently? If that's who you are, then you're fine. But if you're relying on some outward appearance stuff, be careful. How do we then make sure that we are that tree that bears good fruit? Well, again, those answer, the answer to that is not in the outer things done, but rather the interior change as you submit your hearts and minds to Christ. So this is a prayer that I pray for myself, and I'm just going to share it with you uh, this is just one of those things I kind of run through if I don't have anything specific to pray about or I'm just kind of in a place of needing to get realigned with God. And I kind of based it on the fruits of the Spirit. And you can use this or you can not use it, but it's that, it's that place of submitting ourselves to the Spirit. And I'm actually going to pray it, and you can pray with me, though it's not going to be the end of the sermon as much as you may hope for that's the case. That we're close to the end. Father God, search my heart and mind with your Holy Spirit. Please take my hate and give me your love. Take my bitterness and give me your joy. Take my fears, give me your peace. Take my arrogance and give me your patience. Take my indifference and give me your kindness. Take my selfishness and give me your goodness. Take my rebellion, 
Give me your faithfulness. Take my anger. Give me your gentleness. Take my lack of discipline. Give me your self-control. In Jesus' name, please remake me into your image. In Christ's name, amen. Like the Lord's Prayer, this is just one of those prayers that I, I do often. It's just one of those places to remind me that I need to grow in those fruits. And this whole concept of grace, faith, and works, it's not rocket science. You are, you are what you believe. If you look at your life, how you live Monday through Saturday, you are what you believe. Sunday morning, coming to church on Sunday doesn't save you. You are what you believe. How do you live your life? If you're a Christian and you know it, then live as Christ would live. And the only way to do that is to be in that relationship with God through the presence of His Holy Spirit, to allow Him to transform your life, to allow Him into those places of your heart. Allow Him to make those changes. Set aside your pride and let the Holy Spirit make the changes so that it will be said of you, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that your word is deep. Our faith is deep, Lord. And help us to want to wrestle with it and grapple it and not just, you know, allow ourselves to be in a place of kind of a childish faith, but allow us to want to grow deeper into it and to understand some of the nuances that are there because complicated things sometimes are just necessary in life. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand this idea that we need to grow in your character and then act within your character, that we are responsible to respond to what you've done in our lives. And to not live in fear, to not live in fear that, oh my goodness, maybe I'm the one that's going to be heard, Lord, Lord, and go away, I never knew you. But instead to live in the trust of knowing that if we want to be in relationship with you, you want to be in relationship with us. And if we are willing to submit our hearts and allow your spirit to change us as men and women, old and young, regardless of our backgrounds and cultures, if we are willing to allow your spirit to change us, then you will allow us to grow in your character. As we grow in your character, we will find ourselves doing the things that you do, loving the things that you love. So, Father, I pray for all of us that there is both assurance but also some challenge. And, Lord, as we pray, one of the things that you, you told us to do to pray in your nature is to pray for those who are struggling. And we, we lift up, you know, our folks that we care about, and we have some folks that are going to this church from Ukraine, and We've been praying a lot for the Ukrainians, but Lord, in my mind, I also am mindful of this kid that's been on trial for war crimes in Ukraine. He looks like he's about 12 years old. And uh, may we not forget the Russians who are involved in this as much as they seem, it seems very unjust and we're disgusted by the, the acts of brutality. May we not forget that they are humans. And Lord, you died for them as well. And Father, we pray that somehow you can use this terrible war to bring about a transformation which will bring you glory. I know a lot of folks are thinking this is the end of all things and we're heading down that road, and maybe we are, but if we're not, 
Then we pray for those that are in that place of, it seems on our perspective, they're the enemy. And they are persecuting people. And Lord, God, that you may change their lives, change their hearts. For a lot of these young guys, I can imagine what I was like at 19, 18, even 20. I would have followed orders probably. And I hated myself for it. Maybe that's what this kid did because he pleaded guilty. Didn't even try and fight back. Just said, yeah, I'm guilty. Lord, we pray for the souls of everybody involved. And being a non-Ukrainian, maybe it's easier to pray that. It includes the Russians. And we pray for the families that are being deluded and are thinking their sons are safe when they're not. And who are going to be getting word back that their sons have died or just disappeared. Father, we pray that justice will be done. We pray that your will be done, but we also pray for the souls of these young people who are just in the middle of this mess. And their souls are being torn apart as they kill and murder and destroy. They're going to need a lot of healing. I don't know what to pray about politics, so I'm not going to bother. But Lord, I pray for the souls of the people involved, everybody involved. And God, protect the innocent. We know already the innocent have died, but we pray that this will not just be a mess that has no, any, any kind of glory or anything. We pray for them as well. Help us to be your people with your character. From this place that we stand in, the, in a place of relative safety, may we be generous. May we clothe the naked, feed the hungry, give water to the thirsty, visit the sick, visit those in prison. May we glorify you by being your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.